Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We are go for launch. Okay, all flight controllers, let's play it cool. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, really it's good. going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins and what promises to be another momentous year for space exploration. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham and this is Sue Nelson. We're at the Open University in Milton Keynes in central England. Well, sort of central England, isn't it? To discuss China's moon landing. We'll also talk to the woman operating a spacecraft around Mars and we'll get an exclusive look inside the Apollo Mission Control during its major 50th anniversary restoration. They said that at some days that uh, there was so much smoke in here that you could not see the summary display screens. So, <laughs> so it's only a few metres away, but yes. you couldn't see this vast display No, this you could not even screen. see this, the, uh, the displays on the screen. With us is Professor of Planetary Geosciences, David Rothery, an expert on moons. Uh, Dave, how significant is it that China has landed this rover on the, on the far side of the moon? Well, they've overcome major technical challenges, which no one's attempted before, because if you're on the surface of the far side of the moon, you can't see the Earth, and that means you can't get a radio signal to the Earth. So to achieve their landing, they had to put a relay satellite in the position that could permanently see both the far side and the Earth. And so that wasn't a matter of putting something in orbit about the moon, because half the time it would have been on the near side and no use to them. So they've put it in a halo orbit around a Lagrange point on the far side of the moon. So it's circling around this quasi-stable position and it can see the whole of the lunar far side and it can always see the Earth above the horizon as well. So they've had that relay satellite there since June or July and 3rd of January, was it? They put a lander down on the surface. So it's never been done and what a marvellous technical achievement. I rather like the names that they've used for them as well because uh, uh, I I can't pronounce the Chinese um, word that they use for the relay satellite, but I know it means magpie bridge. The lander is Yutu, which is the jade rabbit, and Changi, the mission itself, is the moon goddess. I love it. The rover is U2-2. Oh, yes, because we've had U2-1 in 2013. And the the lander is is Chang'e 4. It's the fourth in the Chang'e series. And it's the the Magpie Bridge Relay is something like Kwayao, but I don't know how to pronounce it. It it looks like Kwayao, but obviously there must be a... There's two Qs, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but forgive us, any anybody from China, the space, forgive us, forgive us. Now, it is perhaps significant that the landing comes 50 years after the first manned mission to the moon, Apollo 8. And I asked Commander Frank Borman about his first impression. We were, of course, on the far side of the moon. People on Earth often refer to that as the dark side, but that's incorrect. On our mission, the back side or the far side 
was illuminated uh, more brilliantly from the sun than the, the side closest to the earth. And the uh, lunar surface was terribly distressed with uh, meteorites, holes, craters, volcanic uh, residue. Uh, it was uh, a very, very distressed place. And one of the things that struck me was there was absolutely no color. It was either gray or black or white. Colonel Frank Borman. Uh, David, he talked about there being black and white, completely monochrome. So why do these images we're seeing from this Chinese uh, lander and rover... Well, the first images. Yeah, yeah. why do they appear to be sort of red? It was only on the first images. They they hadn't calibrated them. The the red sensor for the colour imager was more sensitive than the green and blue sensors, and they didn't correct them. But that was just from the navigation camera, but now images from the science cameras showing the moon in its correct colour, which is pretty colourless. It's shades of grey, basically. So they just basically had the red filter up and the blue-green filter down. Well, they're not filters. Or whatever. I'm just simplifying. (laughs) (laughs) They're electronic sensors. They're recording an image in red and green and blue, and they just hadn't gotten them balanced I don't know why they didn't. They didn't need it for navigation purposes, but it, it did give this misleading impression of a of a red lunar surface. Like Mars. Didn't like it? Mars, and that, that's actually quite wrong. It is very, very colourless. Now, what uh, Colonel Bourbon was saying about the, the far side was it, it was so different to him, to the, to the near side, to what we see from Earth. You know, this, this jagged, jumbled, you know, incredibly different. What, why is that? Well, the, the lunar far side lacks the vast areas of, of, of lunar basalt fields. The, the dark patches you can see on the moon of the naked eye, that we call the lunar maria, um, those are vast outpourings of flood basalts which covered a lot of the surface. They cover something like half the lunar near side. And so these it's the don't, lava. lava it's, yes. it's lava plains. And almost every Apollo landing, I think everyone apart from Apollo 16, landed on on lava really because it's smoother and safer there were not such vast lava outpourings on the lunar far side there are small patches of mari but mostly it's ancient terrain more ancient than the lunar lava fields and so it's had more time to accumulate craters which weren't then buried by lava so it is a rougher surface on the far side now why we don't have these vast outpourings of lava on the far side um, isn't so straightforward to answer on the near side, the, the Lunar Maria fill ancient impact basins. Um, there's a very big ancient impact basin on the lunar far side, the South Pole Aitken Basin, within the north side of which Chang'e 4 landed, but that was never flooded uh, to any great extent by, um, by basalts. It's probably because the lunar crust is thicker on the far side and it's harder for for magma to, to reach the surface. And now, why is the crust thicker on the far side? <laughs> That's the thing, we you, don't you know. keep coming up with new questions. We have an a slightly asymmetric satellite of the Earth. It's captured into synchronous rotation, rotating once per orbit. And I guess the stable configuration is with, thick, is with a thicker crust on the far side. And that brings the lunar mantle slightly close to the surface on the near side. So intuitively, if you're going to rotate once per orbit... It sounds a little bit more stable to do it that way than the other way around. So perhaps that's why it's happened. And it's actually landed in a crater inside this basin, Von Karman Crater. It's a fair-sized crater, and it does have on part of its floor an area of, of lunar basalt, which makes it smooth and safe to land. But it does mean they're not landing on the exposed 
deep interior of the moon, which is the main scientific reason for wanting to go to the South Pole Aitken Basin, because it's excavated very deep and could potentially expose, if not the lunar mantle, at least it's very lower So crust. they should have actually gone away from that crater then, because they've got this lunar-penetrating radar that can go to about 100 metres below the surface, so should they not then maybe have avoided it? Uh, no, they wanted to land somewhere as safe as possible, which I can applaud. They had wonderful hazard avoidance software. If you look at the video they've released in I the have, landing, yeah, yeah. It's, it's but, great. But even so, if, if it's too rugged, you're not going to find anywhere safe. So they went somewhere safe. Now, it's quite possible that because there have been impacts outside the von Karman crater, that these have guarded material and redistributed it. So there will be some blocks on the surface ejected from craters younger than the partial lava flooding of von Karman crater, but have hit the exposed floor of the South Pole Aitken Basin and thrown some ejector inside. So with the rover, they can go around and find some lumps of fairly locally sourced ejector from two or 300 kilometres away. So they might find a bit of lunar mantle with their rover, which could, can operate for months, if not for years, we hope. Uh, to your mind, what's the big deal that this is China doing this rather than, say, the US or even Europe or Russia? Well, it's it's good to break a monopoly. I mean, it, it's nearly 50 years since the Americans last put people on the moon. The Russians, the Soviets had two Lunacod rovers as well, which and some samples were brought back. But it's 45 years since any of this was done. So I'm glad somebody else is doing it. I don't mind if it's... Uh, the Chinese, not the Americans. I hope we can continue to explore the moon as well as the rest of space in the spirit of cooperation, um, friendly rivalry. Um, but no, all fair play to the Chinese. What a wonderful achievement. They're planning it in stages. Their next enterprise will be sample return from somewhere on the near side. And they're planning to sample an area of what looks like young lava flows. We think on the basis of the density of superimposed craters, this area of Luna Maria may be only a billion years old, so that's a third the age. Only, only a billion. <laughs> yeah, but a third the age of the three billion-year-old lava flows where Apollo 11 and 15 landed. But we want to confirm that age, so if they bring samples back as they plan, we can date them in the laboratory. That will be, that will be an important piece of calibration. And then they will send humans to the moon. What don't we know about the moon then? I mean, you know, well, there's surely, still the, you know, about how it formed, isn't there? There's yeah, still the, but I mean, is there the are there big questions there? I mean, is there science to be done? I mean, it's all very interesting for you geologists, but is there is there big big science to be done? Well, there's an amazing amount of science to be done. We're not sure how the moon formed. It, it was probably a fairly catastrophic impact onto the Earth, which threw debris out in into space around the Earth, which then coalesced to form the moon. Um, but if you look at the isotopic ratios, there's still doubts about just how this happened. Then there's the fact that we used to think the moon was bone dry, but there is water inside the moon, small amounts. Um, and why wasn't that lost in this impact process? And then there's the polar volatiles. There is water trapped inside permanently shadowed regions at both lunar poles, which is probably arrived from comets much, much later, and it's accumulated there in these polar cold traps. And that's a possible resource. If we have humans ever living on the moon, they won't have to take all their drinking water with them if they can mine this stuff in the permanent shadows. So there are things about fundamental solar system origin and growth, and there are things about resources on the moon 
that we may wish to make use of if we want to be living on the moon or using the moon as a base to further our exploration uh, beyond the moon. And there's also, it's much better on the far side as well for radio astronomy because you haven't got all that noise of the Earth when you're looking out further. And the, the the sort of potential of a moon base is something that we on the podcast are all very interested in and very keen uh, about. And China did announce last year that they wanted to be involved in making a, a, a lunar base. Europe have been interested in it for a while. I think America are, are not going to be left out on this, are, are now got their renewed interest in, in the moon. As from a From your point of view... Would a lunar base actually be as useful for you as unmanned rovers going, uh, a robot or a spacecraft going to different parts of the moon rather than just being stationed in one area? Because you want to get samples, don't you, from all over? Yeah, it depends whether I'm wearing the hat of a lunar geologist wishing to understand the moon in detail or whether I'm thinking more grandiose plans about exploring the wider solar system. Fortunately, it's not my call to make. There are pros and cons to both. I think the talk of a lunar base that you're referring to is about a, an orbital station, yeah, rather than something on the surface of a moon. Because no, the, the Europe, Europe are looking at a at a at a, a, a manned base on the lunar surface. There are also talks with with NASA, aren't there, in terms of a an orbital? Well, there, station. Will, there will be. I mean, yeah. there will be the orbital gateway. We yeah. know that's going to happen. So there, it's then a question of. Can we live on the surface, I guess, for prolonged periods of time? And you, that, That's your area, really, isn't it? It will be easier for people to be in space for a prolonged period of time if they're doing it on the surface of a body like the moon that's got some gravity. Yeah, it's got one-sixth gravity. If you're living in microgravity permanently, you've got to take strenuous efforts to keep your body functioning properly and to enable you to return to the Earth in a, a decent state. There's also talk about potentially living in the lava caves, on the moon, when this was reported uh, within the last couple of years, um, they said that this would potentially protect people from radiation, and that you've got a ready-made caves there. Could you live inside lava caves? I don't see why not. Um, these are lava tubes. Lava, when it flows, builds a channel for itself and builds up walls around the channel, and the roof can freeze over and then the inside can drain out and you've got a lava tube and if part of the roof collapses you've got a skylight into it natural access to this great long tube I've been in lava tubes on the earth yes it's been suggested I don't know whether the difficulty of landing pinpoint close enough to one of these and safely enough close to one of these is going to outweigh it's going to be better for you than just landing somewhere where there's plenty of lunar regolith that you can just pile up and just make your own uh, protection because the lunar surface is just loose dust and grit. You could scoop that over your habitat and protect yourself from the radiation. Well, yeah, and that's, meet... that's the European um, way that they're thinking of is using 3D printing, using that moon dust to actually make structures that protect you. We, you could build load-bearing structures which would also protect you from radiation. I, I don't know how much thickness you need. A metre or so of lunar regolith is probably enough to keep out most radiation. Would you want to live on the moon, though? Oh, Richard, I hate it. I hate it when he says this because I would and he wouldn't. And it just, oh, it irritates me. Is that a genuine offer? How, how big's your budget? I would love to visit the moon. I'd love to, I'd happily spend a year there, but I think I'd like to come back afterwards. 
<laughs> uh, David, stay with us. Uh, we'll talk from the moon to moons. Uh, and in a moment, we'll be going inside Apollo Mission Control, as you've never seen it before. Uh, you can hear, by the way, more from Frank Borman and the Apollo 8 mission in our programme Message from the Moon, which is our documentary for BBC Radio 3. Uh, it's on Astronauts and Faith, went out just before Christmas. Uh, it's available on the BBC iPlayer, the BBC website and BBC Sounds app. So just search BBC Message from the Moon. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're at the Open University in Milton Keynes with Professor of Planetary Geosciences, Dave Rothery. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we will put a picture of this charming room that, we're, <laughs> <laughs> that, we, are, uh, that we are podcasting from. Um, there's not much to it, but... He's <laughs> taking a picture. Yeah, okay. We've taken a picture uh, of this child. I'm just doing a selfie now. That's it there. Yeah, that looks particularly grim. Okay. Um, well, back to the moon now. Uh, or rather, the room that made the moon landings possible Apollo Mission Control Houston. In recent years, it's a room that has seen better days. In fact, although it's listed as a national historic monument, it deteriorated to such an extent that it received the rather unwelcome designation of being threatened. But now, ahead of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, NASA's doing something about it, and a major restoration is underway. When I was at the Johnson Space Centre recently, I was lucky enough to be shown around by historic preservation officer Sandra Tetley. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control at T-minus 2 hours, 34 minutes, 57 seconds and counting. So this is what we call the back hall, and it is completely under restoration. Uh, all the wallpaper has been removed, the ceiling tile has been removed, and they are going to put in the new electrical systems. They're going to change out the lighting to where it is a dimmable lighting system, and then we're redoing the ceiling tiles. So we, we found the original ceiling tiles, and we're able to go back to Armstrong tile and then um, get a base tile. And then we have a series of pins and stakes that they were able to poke the proper holes in it. So they'll all be recreated. So right now, we're looking across at the consoles, and they're covered, sealed in, in plastic yes. just to protect them. Yes. So the first two rows are gone, and rows three and four were covered. Uh, when they took the, the ceiling tiles out, we didn't want it, them full of dust, and so they were covered. So how much of a challenge is this? I mean, I guess you stripped this down to the bones now. We did. What's very interesting is that um, in the original plans, um, we were not going to re-wallpaper. But we actually found the original wallpaper behind a fire extinguisher. So we were able to go back to a manufacturing company, and they went back and found the actual roller that made that wallpaper, and we were able to recreate the wallpaper. And so we're, we're, that's why we took everything down, and now we're going to put the reproduced historic wallpaper back up. What about the, the dirt and the, the grime? I'm looking at the vent over there, and it's just black yeah. with, well, with that, dirt. And people would have black. smoked, wouldn't no, they? That, <laughs> oh, it's meant to be so black. So that is yeah. meant to be black. But, yes, that was one of the interesting things is that our state historic preservation officer did not want us to paint the ceiling grid because originally it was white. But over the years with the oil-based paint and then the cigarette tar, it has yellowed. And so we, we didn't, they said, don't, you don't remove that patina. We like that. And so we're leaving all that grime. It was cleaned and they did get some of it off, but you can still, it's still kind of that yellowish color. 
So there'll so, still be 1960s cigarette smoke and tar in, in the yeah. fabric of the control room. <laughs> there will be. There will be. And in fact, we're going to have, uh, probably have cigarette butts in the ashtrays on the consoles. That was a big deal. They said that at some days that uh, there was so much smoke in here that you could not see the summary display screens. So, <laughs> so it's only a few meters away, but yes. you couldn't see this, no, this vast display No, you could not even screen. see this, the, uh, the displays on the screen. And what about the screens themselves? Because they are not, you know, now you could get a TV monitor that big. I mean, these are are big floor-to-ceiling screens. These were projected, so you've got to try and restore that as well. Yes, they were actually reverse projected. The projection was bounced into a mirror, and then the mirror projected onto the, the screen. And we're going back with a very similar projection system. So it will be, it'll recreate what exactly what it looked like during 1969. Uh, and you've got to get a balance, haven't you, between preserving and and cleaning up and, and preserving for the future. That's been the biggest challenge, is to do a, a very historically accurate restoration, not just a refurbishment, which, will, which I hate that word, um, but we are going exactly back as much as possible with what was here. And so it's, and then, yes, and our technology has changed so much that even the mission clocks, which are the rectangles at the top of the screens, those clocks are completely gone. So we're having to come up with a projection system that will project onto that to make them look like the the clocks did in the 1960s. So it is, it's a very interesting balancing act uh, between, you know, the technology that we'll use to to light this up and to make it all work together because it'll be all connected with a land system that will have the lights blink and what's on the, the screens and the clocks and the audio versus making it be as original as possible. So it, it's a very fine line, but we have experts working on this. So it's how, going to be great. how do you make it so it feels like a, that it's alive still? I mean, you have projections on the, on the screen and everything, but right. otherwise it's just a room, isn't it? It, well, the flight controllers call this a shrine. They do a cathedral is what they call it. So when you, the idea is when you step into the viewing room from the back, you'll be stepping back into time. And it will look like the flight controllers have just stepped away from their consoles. There will be lights that will be blinking. Uh, the monitors will have the right projections on them, You know, be it a, a graph or a map or whatever. There will be things placed on the consoles, ashtrays, coffee cups, flight control manuals, and, and all of that will be placed everywhere. There'll be coats on the coat rack. There'll be flags hanging. The, the clocks will be working. You know, the screens will be working. So it literally will look like that you have stepped back into time. Now, we've been walking through here. We're pretty much at the, the front looking back at the consoles and two rows of consoles that are currently here. What about the carpet? The carpet is a mess. You've got, you know, these really unpleasant brownie gray. I don't know what color, what color are they? I can't tell what color they are. <laughs> government uh, brown. Like government brown uh, <laughs> There's a lot floor of pati- tiles. There's a lot of patina on these floors. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, there's huge stains across, huge yeah. stains across it. Are these original government issue tiles then? Uh, they aren't original to the room. Uh, when the room was redone, it was uh, repainted and recarpeted and re-wallpapered when they changed out the consoles. And we actually found these wooden boxes those have the the tubes that stick up from the pneumatic tube systems, like at a bank, you know, how those P-tube stations. And we found the original carpet underneath those. And the way that they make carpet now is different from the way they made it in the 1960s. But Mohawk Carpet figured out a way that they can recreate the look of the carpet. And they also perfected the color, and so they're going to, they're recreating carpet for us. So all of this will be put back into the original-looking carpet. 
And you just mentioned these boxes and, and vacuum tubes. Was that a communication system around the building then? So That was the email of the time. <laughs> and they, uh, it went to each controller had their own back room. So meaning that they had a group that was looking at different data and, and, and other things, and he would send notes back and forth. And also he could send notes back and forth, you know, between the flight controllers. They said that one of the really interesting things in this room was to hear that noise. It was shoom, 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 this constant P-tubes going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then the flight controllers always tell really funny stories. Of some of the things that they put through those P-tube stations, including hot dogs and mice and, you know, all kind of things. So, yeah, but they're still here. Uh, it's no longer connected and it does not work, but the, the, still the tubes are still there and we're, we're leaving all that. You must be looking forward to the, the day where you can bring the flight controllers back in here because that's going to take them back, isn't it? Because yes. it's, it's not going to have deteriorated or evolved over the years. This is going to be straight right. back to the 60s. Right, and we've had a lot of them here. Uh, before we took the consoles out, we interviewed at least one flight controller at each console to say, well, what did you have? You know, what were manuals? What maps? What did you drink? Did you smoke? Did you, you know, did you smoke a cigarette or a pipe? Or what, you know, how did you interact with your console? And that was really fun, and we heard lots of stories from that. So when they come back and it's completely restored, we're going to have uh, portraits made with them at their restored consoles, and they're really looking forward to that. And then that will really be the last time that anybody can get around the consoles. So we think that's real fitting that, you know, they get to see it and kind of relive that heyday of, of when they, they, I mean, they made history, for sure. Again, it's a power control here. I'm not sure how well our voice is getting out. Uh, there is a tremendous roar, an undercurrent of roar in the background. And I have never seen uh, the degree of this emotional outpouring in any previous mission, including Alan Shepard. Sandra Tetley was my guide to the restoration of the Apollo Mission Control Room in Houston. They have six months to get it finished. Um, I love that. I, I, First of all, my vision was of a sort of nicotine-tinged Laura Ashley wallpaper. So who thought wallpaper in Mission Control? And then I thought, no, it's the 60s. It's going to be one of those lurid 60s colours but I think the mice in the pneumatic tube. <laughs> I was really lucky to get in, actually. Thanks very much to Sandra and the, the people at Houston for letting me in the control room when it was in yeah. such a state. And just fascinating um, to see it. Uh, I mean, one thing, it's, it's uh, I think it's good long term that they are, it's all going to be preserved. You're not going to be able to sit at the consoles anymore. You're not going to be oh, able to get Oh, I've got a picture of console. myself sat exactly. at the console. So, oh, yeah. you know, those of us have been lucky to, enough to be there, yeah. uh, you know, as, as uh, media before. I, I mean, I've been, there i've yeah. been there and you've i've sat at michigan i've sat at the flight director's console they let me press the buttons and all that <laughs> and that is the reason it's people like us is the reason why <laughs> <Our> sweaty little <laughs> fingerprints yeah, yeah. it's the reason why that it's deteriorated so much because you know so many people have gone in they've been reasonably respectful but you know you can't have something like that where people are still pressing the buttons and sitting on the seats it's just going to get damaged so it's going to be preserved for for all mankind for uh, for the future she says uh, at least a hundred years beyond the uh, the lifetime of nasa so uh, you know if nasa's not here in a hundred years time mission control still will be i i like the way uh, along with us um dave you were chuckling away at uh, what you were hearing there I was. I, I've been to Mission Control. I didn't notice the wallpaper. I, I'm, 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 I'm fantasising about what it might be now. But but I, I was thinking about the tarry deposits, and actually tar is a, a substance known to planetary astronomers as tholin, 
the yellow staining we see on on Pluto and Pluto's moons and MU69 that New Horizons flew by, that is TARS made from methane molecules linking together. So maybe this yellow gunk they've got in mission control should be studied because we're not sure how the folins form out at Pluto and the Kuiper belt. So there's a nice link there between what was going on 50 years ago and what's happening today. Excellent. We've got another nice link here because when that was on, we were, ch- we were chatting about the probably the most famous uh, flight director is uh, Gene Krantz, who had the waistcoats. You see it in the, the film Apollo 13, where he's presented with this this new waistcoat from, from his wife that his wife had, had made. And that was his tradition. He'd always wear a waistcoat. Dave, you've got a waistcoat and it's fantastic. And it's very, describe it to us because uh, let's hear it from you. <laughs> it's. Uh, I got it from a charity shop. It's apparently Turkish, so it looks a bit like a Turkish carpet. But, but I reckon if at, if at the Mission Control gift shop they sell Jean Cern and waistcoats, Jean Crans waistcoats yeah. or vests, as they would be over there, yeah. they could do a roaring trade in them. And the colours of yours are uh, carpet was a very good description. Actually, <laughs> it actually colours are so many. I, there's turquoise, orange, aubergine. Pink, green, blue, pale blue, yellow, gold. Yeah, pretty impressive. Thank you, but sadly all I do is communicate with PhD students, not with people walking around on the surface of the moon. (laughs) Okay, so let's move on from the moon to moons, because, you know, you you are a a moon person. Um, uh, And And also an expert with you, really interested in uh, Mercury as well, so it's not just moons. Mm. Yeah, I'm involved in ESA's mission to Mercury, Bepi Colombo. But I, I mean, I grew up in the Apollo era. And um, when I was a young, impressionable postgraduate, we're flying past the moons of Jupiter and Saturn for the first time. And uh, now I run a massive open online course, a MOOC called Moons for the Open University and FutureLearn. It's free study, eight weeks of study. So go to FutureLearn and look for moons. And that will be from in February. It's the next presentation is in February for eight weeks. There's also a version on the Open Universities site, the Open Learn site. We can start when you like, finish when you like, go at your own pace, which might suit other people better. But the OU version doesn't have a cohort of students with whom you can interact. The Future Learn version, you're studying with several hundred other students, and there are there are mentors there to to chat with as well. So take your pick. There's two versions of free studies about moons. And it's not just our own moon that fascinates me. The moons of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, and Pluto's big moon, Sharon, they're superb bodies for geologists. They've got long histories of geological processes. And just because the surface is generally ice doesn't mean there's not geology going on because the ice is so cold, it behaves mechanically like rock. And it has melting processes inside that are very similar to how rock or silicate rocks melt. So you get icy lava flows at the surface and explosive icy eruptions. And then there are those where there are internal oceans. Uh, Europa, uh, one of the largest moons of Jupiter, Enceladus, a, a very active moon of Saturn, both have internal oceans which occasionally vent material out to space. And these oceans, certainly as Enceladus, there's good evidence that we've got water, salty water, in contact with the internal rock undergoing chemical reactions. You've got hot springs on the ocean floor. And that's where life probably began on Earth. There's certainly viable metabolic pathways where if you've got geochemistry going on between water and warm rock, you can have ways for microorganisms to make a living without requiring sunlight. And when 
Cassini flew through the plumes from Enceladus. It found methane, it found silica particles from the dissolved rock, it found organic molecules, and it found molecular hydrogen, that's H2, which is a necessary ingredient to have bacteria down there or microbes of some sort metabolising. So everything you need for life is inside the ocean, inside Enceladus. So we, we, that's the priority for solar system exploration, to find life somewhere else. So actually, in a way, setting up a moon base on our own moon makes more sense because the future of exploration, solar exploration in terms of finding life may be more likely to be found on a moon, perhaps, than a planet. Yes, I think the insides of Europa and Enceladus are more likely to have certainly rich ecosystems than, than places on Earth, or on the, than places on Mars. There are niches on Mars where life could exist, but it won't flourish in the way that it could do in the oceans of Europa and Enceladus. But as to whether a base on our moon is the best stepping stone towards that, I'm ambivalent. Maybe a large construction um, facility in space will be better than going... Why go down the moon's gravity well and have to launch again from it? Yeah, that's what Buzz Aldrin wants, actually, for the moon... Uh, for Mars, is to have a base on uh, Phobos. Well, that's what I was going to ask, actually, is what about... And I, and I think when I've interviewed um, Tim Peake, he's talked about this as well, as for Mar- when, when Mars was the big thing, we were going we're to We're both name-dropping asteroids Yes, now, exactly. We? Well, it's <laughs> just, just another astronaut. Um, so he was talking about um, going to exploring Mars from Phobos because you've hardly got any gravity on Phobos. It's actually relatively straightforward to land on Phobos and have a base on Phobos as opposed to the surface of Mars, we've got this atmosphere to go through all the, the difficulties of landing and getting off Mars. I'm not sure why you'd want to land on Phobos unless you want to use Phobos's resources. If you can land on Phobos, you can put your base in a free orbit around Mars. So why do they want to land on Phobos as a site for their base? I don't know. Had <laughs> <laughs> to ask Tim Peake. He just mentioned it in an interview. What about, you know, the moons of Mars? Are they worth exploring? Are they worth um, going to or, or having, you know, some sort of exploration? I, I, on well, them? I would have thought Saturn's more, but no Jupiter's. No, the moons of Mars we'd love to know more about. Um, they are probably captured asteroids. A weird thing about Phobos, the closest and larger of the two, is it's got these grooves across its surface. Um, which are sort of overlapping chains of craters. And there are different theories about how these form. Some say they're tidal cracks in the moon. Um, colleague of mine here at the OU, John Murray, has been uh, um, propounding the theory for 20-odd years now that, that, that they are impact craters on Phobos caused by Phobos passing through ejector from an impact on Mars. So they're like machine bullet traces Phobos has gone through this ejector being thrown out from Mars and you get a line of, um, or parallel, several parallel lines of impact craters. But we don't know. Um, so there's a fascinating uh, history behind um, Phobos, uh, originally an asteroid, then captured, and then how did it get these grooves on its surface and what's it made of? Um, we are sampling several asteroids yeah, right now. There's, we've got Bennu and Ryugu both being sampled by OSIRIS-REx for NASA mission and Hayabusa to the Japanese mission. So that's great. We're getting sample return from some asteroids, but the, the ones around Mars will be worth looking at as well. Well, Dave, thank you very much for, for hosting us here in this uh, salubrious room at the Open University. Uh, as it's our first podcast of 2019, uh, do you have a prediction or um, something you'd like to see perhaps in space in, in, in 2019? Not so much what I'd like to see, but what I'm looking forward to is 
is better images back from MU69, the, the Kuiper Belt object beyond Pluto that New Horizons flew by at the turn of the year. I mean, it's a contact. I like the way you're calling it by its name rather than the uh, Nazi Aryan race associated ultimate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think it's better. To, I mean, that was only ever going to be a nickname anyway. We wait for the International Astronomical Union to come out with a a better name. But it's it's a contact binary. It's two lumps that have come together. But why were those original lumps so very nearly spherical? They're only 20 and 15 kilometres across. They shouldn't be so spherical if they've grown by... Collisions between it's like a, almost like a snowman, isn't it? it a rock, exactly. a snowman made of rock. It looks a snowman made of ice. It is ice. largely ice. Oh, See that? And oh, it's not the, like um, comet six seven B rock and ice. There'll be some carbonaceous material. There'll be some methane. There'll be some ammonia. There'll be some carbon monoxide and some water ice. And we'll get the spectroscopic data back within the next few months. It's all on board New Horizons, waiting to be sent back. But not so much what it's made of fascinates me as how did each lobe get so nearly spherical in the first place. A group of us have worked on a paper for the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference invoking this blorp process where impacts sufficiently to sufficiently strong to but when one thing hits another it wraps around it and grows into a sphere. But I, I'm not wedded to that. I think pebble accretion could be the answer. But if you get small bodies coming together then statistically you're going to end up with a sphere. If you get large bodies colliding you're going to get an irregular shape. So, um, and the final collision to grow MU69 is two spheres coming together very slowly and just merging like a snowman. And, and well, well, we will, in a month or two's time, have much more, much more detailed images which will cast much more light on how MU69 grew. And that's what I'm looking forward to most in 2019. And congratulations, by the way, NASA, for that mission because it's, it's always exciting and it's lovely to see Alan Stern... Uh, Involved, what a career he's had, because um, he was also uh, one of the NASA scientists involved with the Rosetta mission as well, which was also a contact binary, two bodies that had somehow uh, accreted together. Yeah, but um, 67P has degraded in shape since it became. Yes, it's a the rubber binary. duck, rather. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the rubber duck shape and very irregular. But if you look inside those deep holes, you can see the features that were called on menu six, on on six seven p. You can see the goosebumps; these one or two meter sized spheres that have come together in layers to grow each lobe. Oh. So that's what I'm thinking of when I say pebble accretion yeah. to grow each lobe of of um, mu sixty nine. Maybe we won't see mu sixty nine in that degree of detail, but I wonder if the, the comet that the Rosetta mission explored has a lot to tell us about features about bodies like mu sixty nine. What I hope for for 2019 is definitely Virgin Galactic to have completed at least one of their passenger flights with their first paying passengers to usher in this commercial space flight. I need a journalist to cover it. Are you going to go along? (laughs) Look, I could be, uh, you know, I want Wally Funk to be on that one. And, of course, I would love to be sat beside uh, Wally Funk because, uh, not least, I would ensure she... Fastens her seatbelt on the launch. Yes, yeah, so my prediction, I mean, I think we're, we're in the uh, 
anniversary year of Apollo 11, so the first moon landing, it's actually pretty exciting for space flight. So we're, we're likely to see the first flight of the Dragon capsule, the human Dragon, the, the human rated Dragon capsule first without people in it, and then hopefully with people in it by the end of the year. Um, not far behind, you've got the Boeing Starliner, you've got the Orion capsule coming up. You know, suddenly we're seeing you know a real. Uh, push in in human spaceflight again 50th on the 50th anniversary of the uh, of the moon landings my prediction also is that um jeff bezos despite his current marital issues will surprise us because he always does. Yeah, there's super secret stuff going on in the desert there. And yeah, it wouldn't be surprised if the the first people to fly in a, in a private spacecraft are with uh, Jeff Bezos. Well, that's it for today's Space Boffins podcast. Do get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or email. You can even send us a letter if you like. We'll be back <laughs> in a month's time. Thanks for listening. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y dot com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.